The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. I think was also why when I was working in several you know, tech companies, I was missing that feeling of really helping in the society. So I started Prerna to inspire, which you know, Prerna in Sanskrit means inspiration. And the idea was really, you know, I came in as an immigrant by my choice, but a lot of refugees land up coming into the country without wanting to really be removed from their country, unfortunately. And so the idea for me was, you know, they need to feel a sense of empowerment and not a loss because they already have lost so much when they come into a new country. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 5. Welcome back. First time listeners, you are in the right place if you're looking for a show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders from the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. Last episode, I spoke to the CEO of Indoor AgCon, which I had the honor of attending in Las Vegas earlier this year. Brian Sullivan, he joined the show to share his years of experience in event management and what led him to acquire Indoor AgCon which is one of the premier trade show and conferences for indoor vertical farming and CEA. In this episode, we discuss the highs and the lows of the events industry. And as you might imagine, with what happened during the pandemic, it's a really challenging industry to be in. And Brian talks about the resilience he and his team showed throughout the course of COVID and the importance he places on problem solving. And more importantly, fostering a familial type culture among his team, which is really key to having them pull through that crisis. Really enjoyed the high vibe conversation with Brian on this episode, and I know you will too. I'm really excited to bring you this week's episode. It's with Mina Shankaran. She's the founder and CEO of Ketos, and she joins the show to discuss her passion for leveraging disruptive technologies to make an impact as a social entrepreneur. If you're not familiar with Ketos, it's a vertically integrated water intelligence platform that's on a mission to transform how water operators measure, manage, and forecast water quality which is something that's very critical for this audience. And we talk about her story 
very inspirational immigration story, how she's launched the Women Inner Strength Project, her passion for doing good and solving existential problems, really, really connected with Mina on this episode. And I think you'll feel the energy of this conversation and it's really high vibe. And I'm, I'm just grateful that we were connected and I had the chance to share her story with you. If you haven't done so already, don't forget to sign up to the Vertical Farming Weekly newsletter. The URL is pretty easy, verticalfarmingweekly.com. Each week, Noah, our editor, brings you the latest and greatest in the world of vertical farming. You get updates on the latest podcast episodes, and we share some podcasts from our partner, Kyle Barnett, at Crop Talk as well, verticalfarmingweekly.com. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, we're looking for new reviews. I'd love it if you leave one at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I love reading these out when I get these. They excite me so much. And it's a really high vibe moment of my day. So do that if you haven't done so already. Also, as a reminder to those that are listening that are in the marketing departments of companies looking for partnership opportunities on a podcast like this one, well, we have now opened up new sponsorship opportunities on a episode basis and season basis as we wrap up season five. So if you're getting value from this podcast and you're a regular listener, then you already know how much I love my relationships with my sponsors. It's something that I prize and treasure and looking always to build long-term relationships. If you think that's a fit for you and your company, reach out to me directly, harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. I'd love to have a chat. Okay, let's get into this conversation with Mina. So Mina Shankaran, founder and CEO of Kidos, thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thank you, Harry. Um, really appreciate you having me here. So where is home for you? Home, you know, growing up was Mumbai and in India. And, you know, my parents are originally from a southern part of India. And now home is really going back to the village my father grew up in which made it into Google Maps a couple years ago. I tease him that we finally have buses that are going to stop his village. And it's truly home. And, and the way you sort of asked me, where is home for you, triggered this reaction for me to share more than I would have usually shared because just it goes back to the roots of your ancestors and where family's really from. And my family is finally going back to those roots after having lived in a city life or, you know, in Mumbai for 45 plus years. So definitely something very top of mind this year. What is the name of the village? It's called Visalur, V-I-S-A-L-U-R. Okay. Yeah, we have to track it on Google Maps. <laughs> I'll make sure to include a, a pin drop to that in the show notes so if people are curious. <laughs> and have you been? Oh, yes, absolutely. Since a child, but you know, over the years, it's as you can imagine, our you know, farming is has been a tough thing within countries like India. As more and more children are moving into urban cities, and yeah. so farming as a whole, and my ancestors and all of them come from actually farming and agriculture. It's all paddy and coconuts, and so I feel like I'm going back to my roots in so many different ways of being able to you know, also expose and nurture and teach my child the importance of farming and rural living and self-sustainability. So whether it's uh, Mumbai or Visalur, what is your fondest memory of uh, living there or growing up there? I think it's family. For me, being in Mumbai, I mean, you know, if you've been to India, you'll know it's so disparate. It's got a Ferrari and right next door, you'll have a bullock cart and a cow crossing the street, right? So it's 
people who travel to India, you either absolutely love it or it's not for you. <laughs> and so you have to have an appetite to really love that space. And I think for me, some of the fondest memories is just, you know, we came from a very modest family. My dad was a chemical factory worker as he grew up in the ranks. And, but what was unique was how the four of us operated as a unit and how he always encouraged his two girls. And it's very timely out talking about father, you know, with Father's Day around the corner. But it was really about, you know, be independent and be a strong thinker, make your own decisions and, you know, focus on education. No one can take your education away from you. And really sort of, you know, helping us build our foundation. I feel like both my mom and dad, they've just done their entire life, if I can think of memories in India, it just feels like sacrifices, but beautiful memories that have now become the tools for my future. And when did you finally make it over to the States? Yeah, it was just under 20. So it was 19. Yeah, you know, it's interesting how between a lot of immigrants, I think most students finish their undergrad, and then they, they come here and do their grad school. And for me, what was really funny, Harry, was when I went and talked to my dad, that was potentially my first airplane. So never been on an airplane. So it was my first airplane. And my dad chuckled and said, well, you always wanted to go on the airplane here. You're going to go on the longest airplane all the way from Mumbai to U.S. And we went to the local library to sit down and look at the map and see where is Texas? What is this state? And it was, you know, it was just the joy of all of us discovering the land of opportunity and you know, if there's somebody who could say they're living the American dream and, you know, this country has provided so much for you to nurture and thrive, I would say I'm a perfect example of that. What do you think it was that was calling you to the States? I think for me, the drive to make my parents' life better, the hunger within me to collectively make the world a better place for India in the sense that coming outside the country to really build the capability of having the power of influence and independence from a financial standpoint to both uplift my family, but also be able to influence things in my childhood home or in my town and make things different that I felt like I wouldn't have the opportunity to do that locally based on just how you know, you've encountered society as a whole. But things are changing. I mean, that was 20 years ago. And now it's incredible what you can see back home. But the drive inside me was just very strong to want to come and learn and grow. And part of that was really, you know, educate myself in terms of what all can I be doing? What can I innovate? And what could I build to make something better for someone else's life? And what am I contributing in this, you know, broader sense of purpose in the world? That's really inspiring. And had, do you have siblings? Did they take a similar route or did, did they follow your path? <laughs> yes, I do have a younger sister and, you know, she's an inspiration to me. <laughs> and uh, she's one of the very few rare Indian women who, you know, went through a lot of the civil services exams and which is very, very competitive and coveted in, in India. And, you know, she's a senior IPS officer, so works in the Indian police services and uh, now currently working in, in the central government. So yeah, she's off to the races and, and doing amazing things and making her impact in the world quite differently than me. But I think our parents' investment in both of us through their entire life is hopefully at this point, making them realize that they've made some good decisions. 
Sounds like you had a really good upper, upbringing. So I'm, I'm sure your, your parents are proud of both of you. Oh, absolutely, Harry. I, the one thing I keep thinking about is if I can be at least 5% of the parents my parents were to me, I hope I can do that for my little one. I think we'll work it out, which would be great. That's why I try to get grandparent time as much as possible. But you can't outsource that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. What was the biggest culture shock for you when you arrived here? Oh, it's so oh, funny you asked. The, the other day, somebody asked me this, and, and Harry, the I don't know if you're aware of this. So I've lived in many states in the U.S., and it's all circled back where I have now relocated to Texas five months ago. And so I was living in California for the last 11 to 12 years. And now I'm in a, in a town that's in between Austin and San Antonio, near New Braunfels. And so to me, one of the first things was just looking at infrastructure. So believe it or not, just coming in and looking at how wide and broad the roadway systems were. I mean, if you've gone to developing nations, you're looking at extremely narrow roads. So I think it's one of the first things that's just like a stark aha moment for me. Yeah. The second thing that was, you know, just a blessing, and I've been blessed by angels, I feel just all around, like every time I've been in need, someone's always been there to support me or help me. And it's been miraculous to see that through my life's journey. And, and I can only hope that I pay it forward, you know, meaningfully for others. But the second thing on the same day I had landed within hours of landing, Harry, what was really amazing was just long story short, I know we have we don't have that much time here today, but the person who was supposed to pick me up as a student from the university didn't show up. And it was, you know, you're all alone in a new country. It's a time and you're figuring it out. Let's just say the police really helped me out. And I landed in the police car and it was my first time and last time. And it was an amazing experience because they were so helpful in making sure that I was okay and taking care of, you know, my transportation in terms of making sure I made it to where I needed to go and I was safe. And that is something I will never, ever forget because as a, as a woman and at that point as a teenager traveling alone in a new country, the first thing that runs in your mind is security, safety before anything else. And to me, I know you asked what was a cultural shock, but to me, it was less of a cultural shock, but more of, you know, how incredible are, that's not how my experience typically would be with police in another developing nation. It's not the first place I would run to. So it's, to me, that was just amazing to see how warm people were. What a great opportunity for you to have an experience with the police and the law enforcement here in the United States and that your first experience was that of a welcoming nature and, you know, how you turn to authority figures at, in times of need and support and that they were there for you to serve that purpose as your first experience yeah. must have uh, been really good. No, it was very warm and it was just a surprise. I thought I would basically get some sort of directions and, you know, off you go, but the extra length that the officer went to was something I have never experienced. And I don't think I'll ever experience it in another country <laughs> again. So you landed in Texas because that's where you studied, right? And then your travels of taking to multiple states, have, as you mentioned. So for the benefit of the listener, we'll get to Quito's in a second. But I think <laughs> I love the just the origin story because I feel it adds context and it paints the picture. And, and I think it helps the listener understand, you know, how you ended up, where you ended up. But I'm just curious, what brought you back to Texas? 
Actually, Keto's brought me back to Texas. Okay. It's really a Keto's journey and a very like clear Keto's derivative of where we are taking the company in the future and okay. how sustainable we want to drive it. But one thing I want to mention, you know, as I landed in the country and, you know, education was everything it was like 100% focus. And, you know, as immigrant students, when we come in, we're so hyper focused on what we need to achieve. And I think that our, you know, my education and then later basically getting employment and being part of, you know, several companies and really challenging yourself and pushing yourself outside your comfort zone. I think that fire inside me to do more and to do better was what kept me pushing. And so I think it's very easy to take one job and be very comfortable or one role and feel comfortable. But I think I sort of really pushed myself in ways that, I mean, now when I think about it, I'm like, oh, wow, I wonder if I would have, you know, do it the same way again or do it differently. Don't know, but definitely, you know, was a lot higher risk taker if I, you know, sort of go back and think about my early years. So talk a little bit about what you came to study and then when you graduated, what fields you entered and then you can choose to fast forward as, as quick as you'd like to get to Keto's. But I'm just curious, you know, about, about you know, what you thought you were going to work on when you got here and what you ended up working on as you started to move towards this path. I came to study electrical engineering and I did graduate with electrical engineering degree and uh, my undergrad was electronics and communications engineering. So essentially studying around RF and satellite communication. And then through my electrical engineering degree was around signal processing. And, and my work led me into the world of networking. And this is, you know, data center infrastructure, enterprise tech, and pretty much 15 years of my career. From the time I worked in sort of varying companies like Countrywide Financial, which later got bought by Bank of America, to then going into, you know, smaller startups once I had moved to California. But in general, my entire 15 years was just all data center, really understanding, you know, hardware, understanding software, understanding big data, understanding, you know, how you take data and then make insights and working with so many financial companies and pretty much around the globe, because at that point I had also moved to Cisco and Cisco really, you know, was was a blessing in terms of just the exposure it gave me in so many different roles under a single umbrella. And it certainly built my confidence. Underneath it all, Harry, I always knew I wanted to do something of my own. So that feeling never left me, but it was more of what is the right time. And the second part of it was also what are you going to do? And so the idea formulation and the timing was always something building. And I think in parallel, a couple of things needed to happen. One, I wanted to make sure that my risk balance ratio of how I would calibrate that would be, you know, really thoughtful because I wanted to make sure my parents were taken care of, their retirement was taken care of. Um, and then I had saved enough for, you know, potentially, can I even be my own pre-angel investor enough to bootstrap something and build something and then kind of, you know, dive in. So I'm not one of those millennial entrepreneurs who started the company right after grad school, which is fantastic. And, you know, the world is the oyster. I would say I had enough bruises and wounds to learn from, but which also built my confidence in wanting to start the company. And I would say the idea, the ideation process, Harry, to me is the most intriguing part. 
because people have millions of ideas, ideas worth a penny unless you can execute on it. And for me, what was very clear is, will the idea actually use the technology I've learned, leverage years of technology experience, but actually have, you know, towards an application that has an impact? Can it make a difference in the community? Can it collectively move us forward as a, you know, society? And to me, those things were very important. And those are the kind of questions I was asking myself. So I would actually go through an entire, you know, I've done workshops in, in some in University of Berkeley and, and others where I actually have walked through like, here's the idea to business sort of, you know, transition. And that's very important because you have to, you know, sort of go through that process with extensive amount of research to know, you know, what is the idea that you're diving into? And it has to sit with you. It can be, you think about it today and then you quit your job tomorrow and then you just sort of dive in and, and do it out of impulse. It has to settle within you and it has to like really grow under your skin to know that 60 days later, you still feel as excited because if you're starting a company, you're the energy that everyone is glued around and your entire company feeds off of your energy in terms of, you know, how you share the success, how you share the failures, how you communicate and work with them through the ups and downs, especially in the times that we are in right now to the pandemic that happened. And, and as we're coming out of the pandemic into another into a recession and everything around that. So I think founding a company running a company is not something I took lightly. So I did put a lot of thought into is this something that I really feel passionate about enough to go through the battle ahead. And I don't know how many people think about it, but I put a lot of thought into it. It sounds like it. Yeah. So talk about the culture of entrepreneurism and it, what, if any, you brought with you from India, how much of it exists there or how much of that mindset you learned here in the States and obviously working in, in California, I'm sure there's, you had a front row seat you know, to exactly what was possible. Yeah, so the culture of entrepreneurism, at least in the circles that I grew up, was not something commonly talked about. And it was more something I felt like anyone can do anything. That philosophy really came to me in the United States, which was also one of the initial drivers for me to come here. Because it sort of was inbred, like, you can do anything here. You know, anyone can do anything here. I think that's even more of a powerful statement. And so if you have the chops and if you have the drive and you don't care about how many roadblocks you have and you're willing to go through that roller coaster, then no one can stop you. And I think I have truly believed in it. And I think that spirit in me is what sort of pushed me harder in the United States to do it. But here's the tricky or not necessarily tricky, but the fun fact here after all these years and thinking through, I also realized that my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, is someone who started one of the first printing press in India back in 1953 after Indian independence in 1947, when he had absolutely minimal to no resources, his early independence days. And, and later he went on to establish three magazines, Motor India, Textile, Industrial Herald, that are still running successfully today with their sons and their grandsons and as a legacy. So I realized, wait a minute, there is some entrepreneurship. The <laughs> it's in there. It's somewhere there. So hopefully I have, you know, some good things that have come from my grandfather. But 
I never thought about it while growing up or that was never a direct influence. It, it's more dawned on me, I would say, now in the last couple of years. One of the things you mentioned earlier was this idea of impact and how it drove the decisions you make and the, the direction and where you are now. Why is that important to you? My family always believed in, you know, help and let help live. Help, And that's always something my dad always said. So, you know, the generosity that I've seen from both my parents, even as a child, it was kind of ingrained in our DNA. Even if we had three plates or four plates of food and we had three plates and there was somebody hungry, the fourth plate of food would go for them. That was just how we grew up. And we didn't have many resources, but we always felt rich and wealthy in terms of the love and affection and the bonding and the support system we had. And most families, I believe in this country, can't say that they have that. And we were a big part of our lifestyle also belonged to volunteering. And we would, you know, even today, post-retirement, my parents volunteer at the old age home, or they go and work with, you know, the senior citizens and nursing homes. And, and, you know, I have a couple of my aunts who, you know, not being blessed with eyesight. And that's always kind of being pretty intense in the family. But the broad sense of all of this is, you know, giving, helping others is something that is very important to me, because I think it's almost how that derives joy for me. And, and that flows into my team as well. My team is like my family to me. For me, you know, making sure my team is motivated, thinking about what are the small things that matter to them? Are they feeling challenged in their career? Do they feel, are they appreciated and acknowledged in what they're doing? And are they having an environment that is supportive and enabling them to be the best version of who they can be? These are things that actually make me you know, keep me awake and thinking about, do I have the right structures? Am I constantly adapting to continue that culture and continue that structure as we scale and not just remain, you know, that way in the first 20, but not necessarily the hundred when you get there. So I think that there, that's the common thread, Harry, as you go through is of giving, is of helping, is of support, is of impact. And, you know, life is beyond just what we do. We're just a of, you know, in our life that we leave here and what we do for the people around us and how big of an impact and that orbit expands is what's going to be, you know, really valuable. We can't really carry anything much with us. Very well said. I'd like to give you the opportunity to share a little bit about Prerna, the organization you started. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while since anybody asked me about Prerna, but like part of that, I think, was also why when I was working in several you know, tech companies, I was missing that feeling of really helping in the society. So I started Prerna to inspire, which, you know, Prerna in Sanskrit means inspiration. And the idea was really, you know, I came in as an immigrant by my choice, but a lot of refugees land up coming into the country without wanting to really be removed from their country, unfortunately. And so the idea for me was, you know, they need to feel a sense of empowerment and not a loss because they already have lost so much when they come into a new country. And just giving them a welfare check is just doesn't cut it. And I really believe, you know, in teaching them how to fish versus just handing them over a fish philosophy. So Prerna's entire 
construct and structure has been to really empower refugees and just in general people in need so that they can lay a path for being sustainable as human beings. So, you know, whether it's learning English, whether it's teaching their kids English and their spouses English and making sure that they're able to find a job so that they can pay for themselves and grow and be able to afford and and have a stronger sense of identity of themselves coming and establishing themselves in a new country, which is so important for all these families. And so it's really a path about, you know, empowerment and being on the sidelines and watching that grow as a 100% volunteer organization and having run that nonprofit for 15 years is, um, I feel it's so much a part of my own life. It's like the refugees are my family members whenever I go there or eat lunch or, you know, break bread together. Yeah, and it's something that I imagine will serve as a, you know, almost like a little, a little bit of your legacy that you've left behind. And I don't know that the drive to create something like that wouldn't have been possible without you having had the experience of coming here as well and, and understanding. So to that point, a natural segue would be Women's Inner Strength, <laughs> which is another organization you started around the same time as Keto's. Can you talk about the inspiration for that as well? Yeah, absolutely. There, you know, over the years, the other part that was a common theme was how many women were in engineering. <laughs> as a student in engineering class, it was one or two girls in a class of 100 or even in you know departments where you're running sort of uh, data center networking infrastructure and all these large companies, women were mostly in marketing or sales. But if you noticed across the board, or HR, but it was almost stereotypical how women had gotten classified or just how they had pursued different roles, but engineering was just slim. And I also felt that there were a lot of girls I was mentoring over the years and others who I had started mentoring or I was sitting on different boards as advisors. But what quickly dawned on me is that women get tagged as based on who they are from their work perspective. So you start having these groups of women in law, women in medicine, women in engineering and tech. So it's, it's something like, what if women decide to stay home and, you know, raise their family? That is an incredible commitment and a sacrifice to make. But it's also a beautiful choice if that's the right choice for them. But how are you really empowering women by separating and decoupling this identity of employment, but really focusing on who they are? What's the energy within them? And what is, you know, who is Harry truly for Harry to achieve his true potential, right? And so with that intent to really bring women together and how can each of these women help each other? Like how many women are really actively thinking about how can I help this other woman? So again, it was a 100% volunteer organization and uh, it was called Women in Their Strengths. So that's why it's W-I-N-S. And I truly believe that women are such strong souls and you have so much inner strength that is untapped. And if we are able to uplift each other, we'd be unstoppable. And part of the WINS group was, you know, bringing really incredible speakers every month, being able to share have a topic of conversation, meet for an hour or two, which has been very difficult since COVID and last couple of years. But it certainly has sparked a movement in which I've noticed so many relationships just flourish and thrive outside of that of the room, which I already believe is is a success and goal achieved. I didn't really need to, you know, have sort of crazy goals, at least at this point in time for that organization. Hopefully when cycles 
when my time and life cycles matter, I can do more with both. That makes sense. And I think what's interesting is what we're seeing overall is just the, the resurgence and the understanding of the importance of like the feminine energy and how for, you know, it hasn't been that way for the past couple thousand years. So <laughs> it's about time that, um, you know, people are, are, are being awakened to that, the importance of, of restoring that balance. So I definitely applaud you for those efforts there as well. Thank you, Harry. You know, you just take a plunge, you dive in and you realize that there are more people thinking like you and that want to be part of that versus, and you're not alone. Yeah, exactly. So talk to me about the origin story uh, for Ketos. Like, I'm curious about uh, when, if it was one of those moments when you had that those thoughts that just wouldn't go away and keep you up at night and uh, how that slowly started to, that, that seed started to become a, a bigger idea. Yeah, you bet. I would say that starting maybe around 2012, 2011, around that time, you know, just the, it started brewing inside me that I was definitely wanting to start something on my own, but the timing wasn't right in terms of right for me and where I was in my career. And I was looking at transitions and, but I, what I was doing was really thinking through my mind of what is it that I want to do? Which area do I really want to dive in? And that was getting more and more narrower, Harry. And I think that's where, when I started thinking about my child, it actually came back to my childhood because I looked at, you know, when I thought about what is the areas of impact and it came down to going to make an impact either in the space of water, air, or food. It had to really be that important of a challenge in terms of serving the community and solving a real challenge that's affecting the planet. And, and then started narrowing if I were to pick one, which one would I pick and why? And what did I feel the most connected to? And I started really feeling most connected to food, definitely, but also water extensively. And I think a couple of reasons why. One was growing up, you know, just like many, many communities in India, we got water from a tanker. Tanker would show up, you know, fill the water up. And I still remember just extensively how much stress was in my mom in terms of boiling the water, storing the water, making sure we all, because we would get water for an hour and she would manage the entire day around that one hour schedule of how she did. She was just amazing superwoman and always doing everything with a smile till date. And I think that, you know, you start thinking about the struggles of water in developing nations and developed nations. And you think this is such a basic human right to drink safe water but we still don't have in this day and age. And in spite of so much, you know, innovation and technology, I mean, we're talking about traveling to other planets and we still can have, you know, clean, safe drinking water for every human being on this planet, yeah. right? So yeah. I think it just comes down to such basics. And part of the other reason for, you know, where water started triggering, you know, additional connections for me and passion was I had probably almost close to 15 waterborne illnesses, if not very close to that, by the time I was even 15. Wow. It, it was just amazing that I had survived sort of <laughs> so many. But again, I'm not, you know, an anomaly. I'm sure there's a good percentage of people around that time who also experienced very similar things. And so for me, there was like, okay, what's the point of me knowing big data and knowing all this technology can we not even predict a water disease outbreak? Can why do so many have children have to die because of waterborne illnesses? And I got lucky that I survived, but so many don't. And so I think there was this need, like if I'm 
really claiming myself to be an engineer and I've done all this work in technology, am I just going to keep making technology better for tech companies or am I actually going to do something about it? And I received a lot of advice where people told me to be part of startups that are tech companies where I will become successful in two years and be a millionaire and I'll, and then I could take that money and then do philanthropic work. This was the common advice I got across everybody who would tell me, join startups, make your money, and then go do philanthropic work and help the people. But they never associated impact and helping people and solving ideas that actually drive you know, the climate or the planet. And this is, of course, seven, eight, eight years ago. And actually making that as part of your core work. What if your purpose and what you really are passionate about becomes your main job? Then it's no longer a job. It doesn't feel like a job because then it's part of who you are and it's you're entirely aligning with all your energy and your focus and your passion. You're going to be so much more successful, even if the outcome is not what you planned. The experience alone of doing that for three years or five years or 10 years is absolutely priceless. No one can put a value on that. And to me, that was worth the risk. And I believe that at the end of the day, regardless of where Kiko's lands, or and I feel like every startup founder should actually have this in their heart, that regardless of the outcome of where their startup lands up, it doesn't matter. Because what your experience and your journey has been is so unique to you that no other job could have ever given you that experience. And that experience is so priceless that eventually you'll end up with some job. Like that's not the problem, but no one could ever give that time, you know, an experience to you ever again. So, you know, if anyone is ever thinking about it, oh, should I start this? I really want to start this idea. Just do it. Like just jump in and do it. Do not, you know, sort of brood over it. Overthinking kills it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The word that comes to mind is mission when I hear you speak. And then also this aspect of, uh, you know, being an entrepreneur myself, it's something that I learned because I was in corporate for, you know, 20 plus years. I had my nine to five, my security blanket, which is not a security blanket when, when you no longer have the job. But I did enter this world and, you know, it was, it was quick learnings because I had to figure out like, it was, I keep saying it's like Narnia. Like I, I signed up for a mastermind and I was like, whoa, these six figure, seven figure business owners and they're creating these and starting these businesses. And this was just amazing that this was possible. Jim Rohn has a, a quote that I, I mentioned a lot. He says, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And that really resonated. And I knew I, I needed to, to learn what this world was like. And, and some of my takeaways and some of my lessons learned are this idea of, of failure is not a bad thing. It's just one more thing that didn't work. And this idea of learning how to fail forward, you know, fail fast and just, yeah, just, just, you just get back up. The first time you just land on your face and you sit there and you wallow <laughs> and you're like, why this happened? But then when you realize that it's part of the journey, you're just popping right back up and you're like, okay, that didn't work. That didn't work. That didn't work. What's next? What's next? What's next? And it's, you build up this resiliency and this idea of taking imperfect action and just momentum, right? This idea of moving forward, continuously moving forward is really where you see the progress. No, you couldn't have said it better. Like I couldn't have said it better. You just said it perfectly. I think the aspect of just not having that pressure and looking at failure as just a an outcome that didn't go as per your plan <laughs> and yeah. just keep moving forward. And the key is making those decisions. Just keep continuing making decisions. If you snooze, you lose. All of these terms are said for you know a reason. And I keep telling that to all my team as well. 
constantly make those decisions. Don't be afraid if they are a wrong decision. If they are, just learn from it. Let's fight back. Let's just bounce back, but make the decision. <laughs> and so, but it's been a beautiful journey, Harry, to have come to the decision that water is what I want to focus in. And then it sort of met multiple pieces because through water comes food safety, through water comes, you know, water safety. And you sort of address so many pathways through water that I could not feel more positive about the direction. And there is a longer story of the process of how I let the water idea sink in my head. And then three months later, decide to, you know, start the company, but we'll save that for another time. However, you know, founding the company in August of 2015, the first couple of years were really, really hard because it was just me and my laptop and trying to figure out a few contractors based on very sophisticated, specialized skills that I needed to really, you know, solve a complex problem and for a precious resource like water. But I think fast forward to 2017, having a prototype, having a concept, and really being able to show that to the world, NASDAQ was our first break and could not have expected a better break. And I think that resulted in having our first seed round of funding and then being able to form a team. So when I look back, we're under just under five years, but it definitely feels like a couple of decades. So for the benefit of the listener, can you explain like uh, the the service that Ketos provides and the different uh, industries that you're currently working in as well? Yeah, absolutely. I was hoping we'd eventually get to that because we were having so much fun talking about all the other fun things. But for Ketos, you know, these Ketos, by the way, it's nothing associated with your keto diet in case <laughs> That's a first disclaimer. Ketos actually refers to orcas. The Greek word is cetaceous animals, so cetos. And I was quite jaded by the number of companies in the water sector that are either aqua or hydro. And I really wanted to sort of, you know, honor the orca, which is such a magnificent, you know, mammal in the ocean. And what better way to, you know, name a company that's really all about water and planet and people. And I felt like the trifecta was just beautifully honored with the Orca. That's why our logo has the Orca as well as the company name is Ketos. And what we really focused on was giving you water intelligence because today, you know, we know so much about what we do. We know our steps, we know our food, we get every possible detail update on our app. However, it's shocking. We still don't know the quality of the water we drink which is amazing to me compared to everything else that we know and we do. And somehow we've just gotten comfortable with it. And we also believe that bottled water is safer than tap water when tap water in the United States is far more regulated than bottled water. And I think it's just the perception of what has been created. So I really wanted to see, well, how do we solve and really make a dent in the water quality monitoring and providing the analytics and intelligence in a way that's like never done before. So the first thing was building a system that's capable of doing real-time water quality monitoring that's credible, that can be accurate as close to a lab and can actually serve the drinking water limits, the wastewater limits, and can work with different types of water, like river water, produced water coming from oil and gas, the water that's needed for groundwater in farming, as well as all the nutrient circulation that's happening now with aquaponics and hydroponics and all the indoor farming. 
So it was a breadth of, you know, what all types of water we need to deal with, because drinking water by itself is just a very small percentage. The industrial water, the agriculture water, and all the other sources of water are a lot higher percentage, and we have very little fresh water left in life. And so if we have to think about water, we have to think about it as one water. All of the sources of water that really combine, you know, what we need to do so that this resource exists for our future generations. The idea about, you know, the number of cases happening with cancer and health risk all around the world is related to environmental issues and understanding how really your water around areas is impacted by, you know, are there Superfund sites? Are there decommissioned mining sites? How is climate change affected, you know, some of the deterioration of the water levels in the aquifer? Is the concentration changed in the water composition that's coming out of the groundwater well? Is that affecting your crops? Are you over-fertilizing? Now, is that affecting the food that's coming on your table? And there's a variety of, you know, life cycle of how that water flows through the ecosystem that needs to be understood. The fracking comes to mind as well. Completely. And all of that is not going to happen by a human being driving around, trying to pick a lab sample, taking a sample and then sending it to a lab and finding out 10 days later, they're only going to do when someone complains. And if someone is complaining, is actually aware enough to be complaining, you're already way too late. Right. And so that's the part I really wanted to get ahead. And so today, Quito's, you know, I feel really blessed and grateful with all the prayers and lots and lots of years of effort that we are able to monitor. I think we've crossed over 13 billion gallons of water that we monitor. We have over 170 million data points. And, you know, in terms of, you know, insights that we have on our platform, but just like four years of deployment and learning that we can actually make a difference in providing real-time water intelligence to industries, mining, oil and gas companies, greenhouses, indoor ag farmers, open field farmers, city utilities, all of them being able to take day-to-day decisions at their fingertips by looking at data and helping them make much more actionable decisions. That's an, an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. And it seems like something that, uh, you know, sometimes you hear about a service or a business that started and you're wondering, why wasn't this done sooner? <laughs> because of the need. And I became aware of like the impact of water or its effect on just on the human body. Because when you, I got into health and wellness, like, you know, a couple of years ago, about a decade ago, and started reading, following someone by the name of Gary Null, and he would talk about this idea of like even your shower filter. And I remember there's a company called Aquasana that makes a filter because we just don't realize how much of that water we absorb in our body. We don't think about it as, as when we're taking a shower. And I was I was just like so conscious of like, well, I want to put this, I was trying to put it everywhere. And then I went down that rabbit hole of like the, the Berkey system and reverse osmosis. You start to figure out distilled and it just becomes like, at some point you, you research so much that you, it gets to be a bit confusing. So I'm wondering how you take all this information because coming from a data science background, I'm sure there's no lack of data data that you have at your fingertips. And so talk about some of maybe the challenge you have in, in taking this and making it actionable and maybe either, you know, even some of the wins that, that some of your, your clients have had by working with you. Yeah, I think that the broad impact, Harry, will happen based on the scale of adoption, right? And today, you know, we have large B2B customers. So food processing companies. So your poultry, chicken, beef processing. I mean, the water that comes that's cleaned all the poultry and then coming out, you want to make sure that's treated so you can actually reuse. 
water reuse is probably one of the biggest impact we're able to have because we're recycling that water. By recycling that water, we're tapping into less fresh water, which is, again, another win. So I look at that as a huge impact from a business-to-business standpoint. The second part is how do we help many of these large industrial companies and others when they're discharging the water, it's actually safe to discharge in the environment so that you're not affecting the fish, you're not affecting the sea life, as well as, you know, any fauna foliage or even that environmental real water that's coming into a stream for someone else to tap into. So I think that the impact is in different sources of where Akitos is able to make a difference. Longer term, as I see this vision expanding and also, you know, from a homeowner for what you just described to me, for it to make sense to every single homeowner, it has to get permeated with all the cities. And, you know, there are some cities that are very foresighted. I would say city of Las Vegas, believe it or not, Southern Nevada Water Authority is one of the most foresighted cities in the country. I mean, they're in the desert and they were one of the first to deploy us. And they've been leveraging us for almost four years now, three and a half years. And they have been using it to monitor their groundwater well. And that way, by monitoring their groundwater and having it set next to some of their wells, it is so important that their customers don't have to complain and they don't have to react based on their customer complaining. They are proactive in understanding exactly what's happening with their water quality and being able to treat it and have predictively the intelligence needed to keep all their constituents safe. And so to me, that's what cities need to be doing. And we're seeing now that behavior in New Mexico. And so There are about eight states that are more active than others, like Arizona is another one, Minnesota is another one. And I'm really proud of, you know, the cities taking that initiative. And when you start looking at the private sector, you know, it's fantastic to see that in the food aspects of indoor farming, where, you know, looking at how, you know, the taste, the quality and the safety of the lettuce, because people are investing in greens first in the indoor ag. So when I look at herbs and kale and greens that we are impacting, I mean, if there is a facility where 15 million lettuce heads are coming out per year, and if Quito's is monitoring that water going across all those 15 million lettuce heads, to me, that's a huge win because I know that food is safe going into all those 15 million homes. And being able to do that in 100 facilities just makes that impact that much more significant when it comes to food safety. So I think, you know, the impact is so profound when you look at from a safety, from an environment perspective to drinking water safety, to public health, to crop yield, to not overdosing on your fertilizers, not overdosing on your chemicals and really helping you see what's optimal for your water. And I think that as you start seeing the scale, Harry, my goal is eventually you should be looking at an app and seeing who all are monitoring around you. Yeah. And and that way you just know if you go to the stadium or this theater, you just know that that system is already monitored and you know that that's the water you're feeling comfortable enough and safe to drink it. And you can just fill up your bottle and drink it. Is that an app the team is working on? Working on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, because as, as you were speaking, I was thinking about even just specifically related to indoor farming, you know, almost a badge that says this facility is, you know, Keto's certified. Yeah. You know, because you've done the due diligence of enabling the testing and whatever treatment needs to happen to ensure that that water which makes its way into these leafy greens. And, you know, I, I don't know what the percentage of water content in lettuce is, but I think it's 80, 90%. So just even thinking about how much 
goes not only into the growing, but it makes its way into the, the cellular composition of this, which eventually gets, goes back into our bodies. It just makes sense to that you would think about this as, as an important part of the chain and something that if you are really conscious of improving the quality of the produce you create and of the experience that your clients and your customers have when they when they taste it and, and they ingest it, like it seems like, like a no-brainer. And, and I'm sure more and more you're seeing more and more companies are, are waking up to this fact as well. Yeah. And it's also helping them reduce their own produce rejection rate, Harry, because imagine your customers purchasing like, you know, Whole Foods and Target. So if they have a bad batch because they just completely based it on empirical research data, I mean, that's directly affecting their operations. And this is not like your open field ag, right? Like you have tomatoes of all shapes and sizes that you're sending off here. Everything is about consistency. So their rejection rate could be pretty high if they don't do it exactly in, in the right type of science. And I think that's where we're able to make quite a significant dent. But it's a joy. I think for me, the biggest joy every day is when I hear a customer success story. And I know that, okay, all these sleepless nights and you know years of working 24-7 as a team to you know, make this vision possible and true is is really worth the effort. When are, are you starting, is Keto starting to make its appearance, any of the indoor conferences? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah okay. We were an indoor ag con, I think, early this year. Okay. I think that's where I saw you as well. Yeah, I was there. Yeah. yeah we're also in another ag conference in, in New York, I believe, next week. Yeah, I'll be there. Yeah. Oh, awesome. So, yeah, our team will certainly be there. So you should definitely okay. connect. And uh, no, I think that we are seeing really great traction with vertical farming customers who are realizing that for the ROI that they have, this can be a massive tool for them, both internally as well as externally. And uh, I really hope that we continue to add meaningful value to their core operations. When did uh, indoor ag vertical farming come on your radar? When did you start to see it more and more prevalent? I would say just last couple of years, it's really pretty recent. I mean, we started off really in the city utilities, as you would imagine, and really working with the cities and say a primary focus besides city was really industrial. So going into large industrial manufacturing plans, quite typical days, I really wanted to help schools. I went to a lot of schools trying to, you know, get into the schools, but And I still believe that a huge portion of the schools in this country are infected with lead toxicity. But unfortunately, it's a very difficult pathway where, you know, school principals really want to make it happen, but they will lean on their facilities people and the facilities people truly believe, or at least that's what they would say, oh, there's no problem. We have no issues and we're fine. We'll do a check once a year. We don't need something you know, and in our palm and an app and actually telling us if the water is safe or not daily. We don't we don't need that kind of infrastructure. And and so to me, it's amazing because we don't even sell the hardware. So there's no capital purchase. And my focus was all about affordability. So it is affordability and accessibility, not just the innovation and technology. So customers don't have to invest any capital budget, zero dollars. They don't have to own it. They don't have to maintain it. They're not servicing it. So it takes away a ton of labor hours. And also for them, they can actually focus on what they do best. They're not technologists. Why try to make farmers and industrialists, industrial operators, technologists overnight? We're the technologists. Let that risk remain on us. Let us do what we're supposed to do best. 
and you know, let them do what they're supposed to do best and let's be the enablers. Sounds like you need to set up a booth at one of these facilities conferences <laughs> where I always try to go back to the source of the where the decisions are making is happening. So that's really interesting. How I mean, a couple more questions if you've got a couple more minutes as we as we wrap up. How have you grown as a leader since starting the company? You know, I, I think that there's so many lessons here. I could write a book on just which is why I think a lot of people write their books. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's it's a humbling experience. You know, every step of the way, what you think you know versus what you think you don't know, and you don't even know what you don't know. I think those pies are so skewed in terms of what you start off with. And that has been a very, very humbling experience and constantly adapting to that and learning from it. The second thing would be, you know, just for me, being a mother recently has also, I think, made, has challenged me to become a better leader. I have now a little one, a toddler, who's just turning 18 months this month. And it has been, you know, quite the journey last two years through COVID, through pregnancy, while running the company and raising funds and, you know, keeping the company, you know, going. It's That's also challenged me to think about how I prioritize my time, how can I be a better leader? What model am I setting for my team? You know, what is the right approach in terms of how you expand things? And in some aha moments have been, I had never thought about paternity leave before ever. And now more than the maternity leave, I think about the paternity leave. And, you know, and the first thing I did was like, what are our policies? We need to, you know, and so it wouldn't be fair to not mention motherhood also being a strong step in making me a better leader. That's very important and very well put. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think all, all everything that's happened leading up to this probably put you in the position to be the perfect person to lead this initiative, this company, this global effort to improve the quality of water. And I think based on you know your experience growing up where you came from it really just feels like it's coming back full circle and the fact that you're able to give back and pay homage to your family your mentors along the way has been i think it's a, a testament to knowing like almost like having a true north and knowing where you were headed all along and so i really appreciate all the work you've done so far and and i want to thank you for taking the time for, to share your in- incredibly inspiring story and and with my audience Oh, thank you, Harry. It was, you know, it just reminded me that there's an audience. I <laughs> just so <laughs> you and me, you know, catching up and getting to yeah. share laughs and share a few stories. But thank you for taking me down the memory lane. You know, you don't often spend time doing that. And you're so focused on, you know, the next challenge you have to solve as a CEO sure. 24-7. So really appreciate you taking the time and, and giving me this opportunity as well. Given that this audience is focused specifically on on vertical farming and indoor ag tech, is there an ask that you have of peers, colleagues, listeners in the space that you have the opportunity to do that now? Yeah, absolutely. I would encourage people who are thinking about your water quality needs, your water monitoring needs as your overall facility, a new grow site, really, you know, check Ketos out. We're www.ketos.co. We are really able to add some meaningful value to indoor ag communities. And we've seen the direct impact in some of our farming customers very successfully, whether it's their nutrient concentration management or they reuse 
or being able to conserve millions of gallons of water per grow site. We're here to support you. And I think you won't be disappointed learning about what new technologies out there to, to make a difference in your operations. Well, thanks again. And we'll make sure to have those links in the show notes. And if people want to connect, they can find all that information on at ketos.co, the website. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Thanks again, Mina. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Awesome. Thanks again to Mina for coming on the show and sharing her story, some of which she has not shared publicly before. And I take that as a real testament to establishing a connection with her, but also just grateful that she felt she was in a safe space to share some stuff that she hasn't talked about before. So thank you, Mina, for doing that. Full show notes are available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. We take great pains to make sure we detail this entire conversation with a recap, key takeaways, links and resources mentioned, and a couple of quotes if you want to share those on social. So please do that. Anything you can do to share this show far and wide is really helpful. And one ask for you this week is if you're getting value from this podcast, mention it to one friend, just one person in the industry who you think should be listening if they aren't already say, hey, Have you heard about the Vertical Farming Podcast? Send them a link to a specific episode. Ask them what their favorite podcast player is and send them the link in their podcast player of choice. That's really the best way to ensure that they listen, follow, and subscribe. And I thank you and appreciate you for doing that. Speaking of appreciation, thanks to our Season 5 title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking to a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co if you're interested in learning how a podcast can be helpful for your business or brand. And as a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, leave us that rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read that out on a future episode. Tune in next week for my conversation with Jamie Burrows, CEO of Vertical Future. That's going to be a great conversation. Until we meet again next week, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.